We don't much talk about this anymore, but the whole notion of the 12 days of Christmas, uh, they run from December 25th to this year to January 5th, and and Epiphany is something that happens on January 6th. Often we associate the celebration of Epiphany with the coming of the, the Magi, the three wise men, the three kings, however you refer to them as they come to the stable in Bethlehem. And they are in that sense, and this is the celebration of Epiphany, the, the first Gentiles who pay homage to this Messiah. They are the example of uh, Isaiah 60, of nations coming to the light of the Christ child. And so we're going to finish this series on light today with a reading of Matthew 2. Matthew is the one who tells us about the appearance of the Magi and, and their star. That, along with Isaiah 42, comprise our text for today. And what Matthew does in, in his gospel, really throughout his gospel, but especially here in the first chapters, is he tells the story of a, a power greater than the kingly powers, a power seemingly much weaker than kingly powers who overcomes those kingly powers. It's a story of resilience, as, as Matthew tells us, resilience in the, the face of really great opposition. Matthew helps us to see that Jesus is born into a very dark and dangerous world. And he doesn't pull any punches, as you will see in this chapter. It's not an easy place to try and survive. And yet he tells the story of, like I said, great resilience in the midst of this troubled world. And that darkness does not have the power, ultimately, to extinguish the light. So let's read Matthew's version of the Christmas story. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men, and learned from them the exact time when the star appeared. And then he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may go and pay him homage. And when they had heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen as at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. And then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Now, after they had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up. 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And after being warned in a dream, he went away to the district of Galilee. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled. He will be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. It's quite a story, Lord, and you reveal yourself in such subtle ways to us, through the dreams we dream, through the visions we have, through the invitations you offer in ways that might be imperceptible, but for the little attention that we might be paying. So we thank you for the faithfulness of your servant Joseph and the faithfulness of those visitors from Persia who listened as well. Teach us to listen this morning and behold your glory in places that seem to be only faintly shining with light. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've seen this quote. If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. First time I saw it, it was on a t-shirt worn by a middle-aged woman who seemed to be wearing it with great joy. No doubt it was a sort of tongue-in-cheek gift given to her by her children. It was worn in, in sort of a good-natured spirit, no doubt, of the gift, but also a nod to the truth of probably pretty apparent family dynamics for that particular family. At best, it's a statement that is about a mother's leadership in the family, kind of a, a nod to sort of garden variety family dysfunction, but nevertheless something that people get along with. At worst, it's a kind of cynical, biting, sexist, and angry statement about the dysfunctions of a family. But at another level entirety, it describes a truth that is true about a garden variety dysfunction in any system or any organization where the primary goal is to keep the leader happy, comfortable. Avoid troubling the one who could make trouble for you. And applied to leaders of governments, 
or to businesses. It's the description of the effects of narcissistic leaders on the systems that they lead. If the CEO ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So keep the CEO happy, whether it's good for the business or not. One of the principles that keeps tyrants in power is that their power is fueled by a fear that is illustrated in this saying that everyone feigns loyalty and does what is necessary to avoid his or her dissatisfaction. And Herod was one such leader. Matthew tells his story, which is the story of how the fires of his rage and fear and narcissism ultimately flamed out. And yet another dimly burning wick had the resilience to survive that flame. Matthew's synopsis of the leadership dynamics that were present in Jerusalem at the time of the birth of Jesus was that when Herod heard the news of the king to be born and where he was to be born, he was frightened. And Matthew adds the rejoinder phrase, and all of Jerusalem with him. If Herod ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So watch out. They were frightened enough. Herod, first of all, frightened enough to send his thugs to Bethlehem and create a situation of an absolute massacre that's, uh, that's just terrifying to read about. And yet the thugs who accomplished that massacre were frightened enough to carry it out in spite of the fact that most of them probably at least raised an eyebrow at the order. It's an illustration of what Jesus would later teach in responding to the request of James and John when they came to him toward the, the end of his journey to Jerusalem and said, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you or make us this one favor. And, and Jesus says, well, tell me what it is. And says, let us sit at your right and your left hand in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus says, well, that's not mine to grant, but listen to this. You know, the kings of the Gentiles love to lord it over them and their leaders love to dominate, but it shall not be so among you for the greatest among you shall become the least. And the most prominent among you shall become the servant of all. Jesus was defining a different source of power. The kings of the earth might act that way, but my disciples don't act that way. So don't. And don't think that this is the question that you ought to be working with, because there's a greater question to be working with. And that is, how can I be in relationship with God and with others? So in Matthew 2, at the beginning of the story, the kingdom of God reflects this value. It reflects the value, as Robert Farrar Capron said, that the, the kingdom is made up of the littlest and the least and the last and the lost and the dead. And Isaiah 42 sort of sums that up in that marvelous image of the servant Israel. The servant Israel, who at that time is in exile in Babylon, and yet being told that they will shine with a light to which all of the nations will be drawn. The servant Israel that was a beleaguered, defeated nation 
looking back at a city that had been destroyed is told that it will shine with the light that will keep the world lighted forever. That servant song that we apply to Christ in the initial context in Israel is about a nation that even though they were defeated and were small, a dimly burning wick and a bruised reed, that they they wouldn't be extinguished and they, they wouldn't be crushed. And apply these same images to what Matthew talks about in Matthew 2. And Jesus is the example of that dimly burning wick, that bruised reed that will neither be extinguished or crushed. This little powerless troika of the Holy Family kind of goes from place to place unhindered by the machinations of the power that is seeking to destroy them. Escaping death more than once. It's the light that that can't be snuffed out by a tyrannical narcissistic power, which ultimately ends up flaming out itself. They're honored and protected by Joseph's faithfulness, willing to listen to and act on invitations to him from God to listen to the dreams that he's been given and to take action on those things. The family's honored and protected by these three obscure magi. You know, we picture them as great kings, but actually probably what they were were kind of odd scholars, Persian scholars who were watching the sky, and they show up uninvited and unannounced because they were paying attention to a light that maybe many people didn't even see. The nations and the Gentiles were coming to the light that cannot be overcome by darkness, choosing to disobey the powers in service of the one true power who ultimately shows himself to be the absolute power in the face of what seems like absolute powerlessness. The littlest, the least, the lost, the last, and the dead. A light that the darkness cannot overcome. And seeing light that the great lights of the world cannot see, and walking in that seemingly weaker and unseen light. That's the story Matthew tells. One of the things that I am relishing about this stage in ministry is that it gives me the opportunity to look back a bit and to celebrate those gifts that I've been given throughout those 40 years of service in in ministry. And so there are stories to tell, and I've told them, and I may have told this one before, but I'm going to tell it again today because it's a profound story of, of something that I got to be involved in only because I was a pastor. And that's the thing that happens is that you get to walk into stories that you wouldn't otherwise be invited into because It's a matter of looking for and proclaiming and giving witness to the light of God in those places. And so I'm grateful for that. And I've seen a lot of things that I would not have otherwise seen if I weren't in this role. And one of those was a a couple whose wedding I did. This is when I was at University Presbyterian. I performed their wedding, and a few years later, they came to me and let me know that they were pregnant and uh, when they were going to deliver. And then 
a few months after that came back to me with some very disturbing news that the mother was pregnant with twins, identical twins, and yet an ultrasound and amniocentesis had revealed that one of these two twins, and identical means they're sharing the same amniotic sac, one of these two twins was anencephalic. They were girls and their, her brain was not developing, but her sister's brain was developing in a normal way. And what they told the couple at that point is, the anencephalic sister might die. If she does die in the womb, then she will definitely interrupt. We will have to interrupt the gestation of the other sister who's developing. And it just was not a, a pretty picture because the chances of her dying were strong, but not absolute. And uh, before birth, that is. And, and so they decided to continue the pregnancy. The doctors, I think, advised that they terminate the pregnancy, but they decided to keep going on the risk that, that the sister that had the anencephalic condition, developmental condition, would survive until birth. And she immediately went into the high-risk prenatal unit and lived out the rest of her pregnancy until they decided the one sister was, was developed enough to go ahead and do a C-section. They did a C-section. They asked me to be present that day to baptize the child who would die shortly after birth. So <clears throat> I went. And one of the things that impressed me is how, how different the whole labor and delivery unit was than it might otherwise have been because I was in places that I wasn't supposed to be <laughs> and kind of ushered into situations that no one looked askance at me until one doctor finally came through and said, we need to clear this out a little bit. And, and so I went to my corner, uh, you know, but I didn't, hadn't gone anywhere on my own. They, uh, they invited me into all these places. And then the, the delivery took place and I was brought back into the room where the father, mother, and the child that lived was in the neonatal unit. And the child that was dying was in her mother's arms. And a nurse brought me uh, some water in one of those little tiny baby bottles, you know. And we baptized the child who was um, slowly, her heart was slowly stopping and she was dying. What I noticed about this situation which was so remarkable is that as tragic and deeply painful as this death was there was something going on first among the nurses that i had not ever seen before and that is there was a kind of joyous kind of bustle about it was like they were getting to see something that they normally didn't get to see it was like something was happening there that that had some light to it, even though we all knew that death was also going to be a part of this experience. And that was the first thing that, that dawned on me is that these folks are witnessing something they don't usually get to see, and they're recognizing that. But there was also this amazing companionship of sorrow and celebration that day, this anencephalic sister who lived long enough to allow her sister with a fully developed brain at that point to live. Had she not lived, her sister would not have lived either. And so it, it was this 
time to mourn and time to dance. It was life in its fullness. And God very much present in both of those realities. There was a deep grief and a deep gladness. The dimly burning wick of God's life and light was continuing to burn. A footnote to this whole text is the way Matthew ends chapter 2. And I'll end with that as well. He ends with the story of how the family ends up in Nazareth. Joseph has yet another dream, and in order to be safe from the powers that might still be looking for them, he moves his family to Galilee, away from the power centers, and moves to Nazareth, which is away from the power centers of Galilee, which weren't very great either. It's the reason why when in John's gospel, the two disciples who meet Jesus first and go back and and tell some of the others, you know, come and, and see, we think we found the Messiah. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And one of them says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, that backwater, that hellhole, that dive, that slum, can anything good come out of there? And you bet it can. And it did. Because the dimly burning wick, which can't be extinguished, was growing up to be the light of the world and the Savior of all. Let's pray. Lord, root us and ground us in your love love that is shed upon us in such subtle and enduring ways and love that is something that massively explodes the skies like an angel host crying glory. But either way, you're with us. So help us to live into those blessings that do not seem to be blessings in the moment. And always, by your Spirit, empower us to look for the light that cannot be extinguished. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.